0: Can open your Bibles to Luke chapter eleven, and at verse thirty-seven, I get to preach on a topic for the first time now in four and a half years. Christian generosity. I have spoken about principles of Christian giving in the past, but never with such specificity as today. If you are a first-time visitor, you should know that I generally progress through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and that way cover topics about as often as God does. So I didn't choose this passage for today. God did. Whether you're a one-time visitor or if you are with us every week, God today wants you to hear and understand biblical principles of giving. So this is your lucky day, folks. Last week, we learned... One religious sect of Jesus' day was referred to as the Pharisees. Their name means separate. But we should also know that very few, if any of the Pharisees, were sons of Aaron. Uh, So they did not serve as temple priests, as did the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, Pharisees did not burn incense or offer the sacrifices at the temple, nor were Pharisees the Levites who assisted the priests in the temple. Um, In a nation ruled as a religious theocracy, of course under the influence of Rome, but still a religious theocracy, yet void of their Davidic king, Pharisees function more like, well, a religious political party, folks established to influence the nation through the religious court system. Some of them were members of the Sanhedrin, the the, the primary court, or what they would consider the supreme court. But Pharisees didn't earn their living from the offerings or the temple treasuries that were intended for, uh, by the law of Moses, for the Levites, for the priests. That's not how the Pharisees earned their living. Some were... um, Officials in the local synagogues, that is correct, but most Pharisees, honestly, uh, folks, earned their living as businessmen. As businessmen. They owned stores, they were merchants. The businesses uh, that they had provided services, and they bought and they sold goods. So, outwardly, They were very religious, as we learned last week. But we need to purge from our mind that they always just kind of walked around aimlessly looking for a place to pray. That they didn't have any real business to attend to. Uh, Some had become quite successful and to some degree wealthy. Many had large homes. That's why we see a lot of the uh, um, dinners with Jesus and stuff being invited into the homes of the Pharisees. They were obviously very well educated in their day. Their disciplined study under a rabbi also required that they perfect a trade of some kind. For instance, Saul, the Pharisee who later became Paul, the apostle, he was very skilled at either making tents or it was leatherworking, probably both or possibly both, uh, which were, by the way, major industries of that day. Major industries in tent making and leather working in that day. As businessmen, Pharisees were thus usually the boss, so to speak. They could kind of make their schedules available when necessary for religious functions. They were used to crafting budgets, familiar with banking and counting money. Most of them were very shrewd. Jesus even accused them of devouring widows' homes. It's been suggested that more than just a few functioned. Many, uh, much like do present-day estate planners, financial advisors, and the such. Which reminds me, we had a neighbor in Texas that lived nearby us, and and, uh, he attended a church at at, uh, one time visiting there. And they were going to help him organize his... Family's finances. Very generous of them to do that. Um, the church's advice came unsolicited, but after attending only a couple weeks, now the church wanted to come in. They wanted to look at all of their expenses, all of their income, their assets, just to help that family. Going to help them out. I think I know who is going to get helped in that deal, and this exposes what can become in religious circles. A disposition of entitlement towards other people's money. Complementing that can arise attitudes of frugality, stinginess towards the work of God and helping others who genuinely need it. Conveniently, folks, the Pharisees exemplified both characteristics. They were both greedy for what belonged to others and they were at the same time very miserly toward the work of God. They were cheap. And they manipulated a component of the law to help them accomplish or achieve both of these. Entering the Christmas season ourselves, we could suggest that the Pharisees were were Israel's combination of of Scrooge and Mr. Potter. Alright? They loved their own money and everybody else's too. They were ingenious in giving to the Lord the bare minimum, only that which they believed was required under the law. In Mark 7, verse 11, Jesus even exposes their tradition called Corban. You heard of that one? That one allowed the Pharisees to shelter ministry assets so as to not even care financially for their own mother or father. They declared it, that money is given to God. Jesus rebuked them them for this. These are the Pharisees. Since I didn't get an opportunity to read this entire passage last week, let's do that first, beginning in verse 37. Now when Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And Jesus went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal... But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these, meaning justice and the love of God, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of of it. Truly astonishing rebuke by Christ. Last week we observed the Pharisees how how they did everything to be noticed by men when they prayed, um, ceremonial washings, what they wore even was to get attention. The light that they shined was a concocted tradition on the outside while they remained spiritually dead on the inside full of darkness. So so their hearts remained unchanged. That's simple enough to understand. There was no spiritual regeneration. They had not, as Jesus told Nicodemus, been born again of the Holy Spirit of God. So they remained on the inside because they didn't have a new heart. They weren't a new creation. They remained on the inside uncontrollably lustful and filled with greed. Folks, nowhere was that more evident than the way that they managed their money. So Jesus said to this Pharisee, in verse 39, Inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not God who made the outside make the inside also? You can't fool God. They should have known that. You can't fool God who created you. His Spirit knows what you are feeling, what you are thinking inside of you all the time. He knows your personal attitude towards giving. We we can't hide that from Him. That's the first thing we need to acknowledge. He knows our hearts. Whether you are saved or you aren't saved here today, uh, whether or not you have made Christ your Savior, He knows your heart. The Pharisees' hearts were full of robbery. Robbery. In this passage, we'll see the who, of course, is the Pharisee, the what is the robbery, and the how we'll get to in a few minutes. Jesus will describe exactly how they achieved it. Now, now does that suggest, saying that they're full of robbery, does that suggest that they knocked off banks? You know, that they were mugging elderly people on the sidewalk? No, not, not exactly exactly. In verse 41, Jesus explains, saying, Give that which is within as charity, and then all things will be clean for you. On the inside, instead of robbery, they should have been filled with charity from the heart. The Greek term for charity is always used in the New Testament in reference to giving to the poor. Almsgiving. So their form of robbery was withholding, withholding charity. Their scheme of robbery occurs on the inside. They don't have hearts that are charitable. And a heart of compassion for the poor is bestowed only by God. This is why Jesus can say to them, Give that which is within as charity, and then all things will be clean for you. You see, if God has given you a renewed heart that is charitable, that means your whole heart's been changed. You've got a heart of God. And then all things have changed. He who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You have become clean through Christ, and therefore your heart is clean. Remember, two weeks ago we learned that there's no such thing as a partial conversion. Or a partial regeneration. In verse 34, back in just a few verses, Jesus says, If and and when your eye is clear, that means when you see Jesus for who He is, the light of the world, then your whole body will be also full of light. Verse 36, If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined. Fully illumined. Consequently, we can conclude that if God has given you a heart that is rich towards Him, you're wholly illumined on the inside. You get it. You know God. You've been changed. Holy illumined doesn't suggest that your, your actions are perfect. It does imply your heart is right because it is alive to God. It is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Um, you have been made clean. You are charitable because you have trusted in Christ. You see Jesus as a light. As a light. Um, Very briefly, according to this, the inverse of this is also true. It has to be true. the The way Jesus presents this. If a heart that God sees as charitable is also clean in all other ways, then an unregenerated heart cannot be truly charitable. We don't have time to discuss this in depth. to just have too much today. But a person who is not trusted in Christ, who does not know Him as Savior, always gives out of a selfish motive. Either they enjoy the satisfaction and the pride, or they think that they're earning merit before God and men. Maybe they simply want to have their name hung on the side of a building. Whatever it may be, whatever motive he or she may have among Unregenerate mankind, there's none who does good, there's not even one. You can't be charitable without a new heart. In verse 42, it's where we get to the just a captivating part of this passage. This is just astounding. The who are the Pharisees, the what is robbery via a heartless heart, contempt towards the poor. Next, we'll observe the how. Do you, do you want to see how? I want to see how. Let's look. Jesus in verse 42 tells us how. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Here's the rub. The Pharisees loved the tithe. They loved it. That means giving 10%, if you haven't heard that before. A tithe means a tenth or 10%. Um, The Pharisees saw it as their ultimate proof of righteousness. They tithed. In Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I pay tithes of all that I get. What a hypocrite. I'm not unjust. I'm not a swindler. Unjust and a swindler is exactly what he was. His heart was full of robbery. The tithes were mandated at Mount Sinai under Mosaic law. There were three separate tithes in Israel. You might not have known that. The first 10% was required annually as financial support for the priests, the Levites, since they were given no inheritance in the land. You need to understand, they were a tenth of the tribes, but they had no land to grow anything. So the support of the the uh, the tribe of Levi, the priests, the sons of Aaron, that came from the first tithe. That's tithe number one. You find that in uh, Numbers chapter 18 verse 21. Then there was a second tithe annually, given in the fall to be shared communally with everyone. Those who had a lot and those who had very little, communally, Um, And that was to be consumed during the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 14. An additional 10% or third tithe was collected every third year for the ongoing support of the poor and the indigent. That's Deuteronomy chapter 14 as well. Uh, These tithes, which cumulatively on an annual average would have come out to about 23 and a third percent were the tithes that the Pharisees and all Israelites were bound to under the law. The law of Moses. Beyond that, you may have heard about the tithe of Abraham, where he gave a tenth. That's Hebrews chapter 7, uh, which clarifies a tenth of what his fighting men... You know, he had fighting men, 318 of them, I think. Of what his fighting men confiscated as spoils of war... And he gave that as an offering to to Melchizedek. It it was plunder, folks. A tenth of the plunder. You can see that in Genesis chapter 14. There's no record of Abraham ever giving any other tithes of his own resources, although he he was very wealthy. So since Abraham was acting before the establishment of the law, before Mount Sinai, um, that's the tithing formula that I follow. I always give all of my spoils of war, any plunder that I gain through a conquest, I give a tenth. The only other mention of a tithe outside of Israel as it existed as Israel existed under the law was Jacob as he bargained with God. He was a bargainer while well, he was a swindler too. He said to God in genesis twenty eight verse twenty if you protect me during my journeys and give me food to eat and garments to wear, if you, if you do a whole bunch of good stuff for me, and if I return to my dad's house, my father's house, in safety, then you will be my God. Then you will be my God, and I will give you a tenth. That's the Jacob tithe. So Jacob established these conditions before ever making Yahweh his God. He was bargaining, uh, that's a similar theological blunder we see today, the, the blunder of Jacob in the prosperity gospel. Lord, if you will prosper me and give me good health and, and you will uh, make my business thrive and everything, then you're my God. That's the God I know. The only rational conclusion is that Jacob wasn't even a regenerate believer yet when he made that immature pledge. Not yet. Thus, Jacob during that period, it's really just an awful role model when it comes to an attitude of giving. The Pharisees were awful role models as well. In contrast to Abraham and Jacob, they were under the law. This is the reason in verse 42 Jesus tells them, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. It's not a commendation of their diligent tithing but an acknowledgement by Jesus that they were still under the Mosaic Law during his life. You understand what I'm saying? It was, a com- it was an acknowledgement that they were still bound to this uh, under the Old Covenant. Before that yoke of slavery, the law, as, as both Paul and Peter refer to it, Acts 15, Galatians 5, that, that yoke of slavery, before it was removed at Calvary, at the cross, And the dawn of a new covenant. So, so pre Calvary, Jesus was not about to advise the Pharisees to disregard the law. He couldn't tell them to disregard the covenant that had been given to them. Instead, he's accusing them of neglecting the weightier provisions of the law justice, mercy, faithfulness, according to Matthew 23, verse 23, because they were not charitable. They were not charitable. They had oppressed the poor by robbing them of the mercy that they should have shown them. They didn't have the love of God. Again, how were they they doing this? Well, here's the how, according to Jesus. You pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. This is where it becomes really instructive. As noted earlier, these Pharisees, they were businessmen. As such, they were very shrewd accountants. They knew money. They not only counted coins, they they meticulously counted their herbs, even their seeds of cumin. They took tithing to the extreme. And after doing so, they had concluded that they had fulfilled their obligations under the law. from our scripture reading earlier in Deuteronomy did tithing fulfill their obligations under the law no no not even close Deuteronomy 15 verse 7 indicates they were give to give beyond tithing If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall give freely. Open your hand to him, and you shall generously give to the needy and poor of the land. That doesn't even come into mentioning the forgiving of debts we talked about in the seventh year you should just cancel out debts too and, and, and this giving here in Deuteronomy 15 is just one of numerous commands in the law under the law to be generous to brother in need to be generous to the poor does that sound like a tithe was sufficient no no That. That sounds like God is asking them to demonstrate love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Satisfying the tithes did not fulfill the requirements of the law in terms of giving. Because the mandatory threshold of giving giving required under the law was not tithing. That was not the threshold that was required. But it was much higher, a heart overflowing with lavish generosity, rich towards God. But the Pharisees were not generous. All that they did was tithe. They were calculated. They were legalistic. Did they pay their tithes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Parsed out every last seed. But tithing didn't show their heart was generous or regenerate as it wasn't. Their tithing indicated their heart was cold and dark and stingy towards the poor. Because as the Pharisees were meticulously counting out their herbs, they were striving not to give extra. That was the whole point of carving it all out. They skillfully evaded the weightier provisions of the law, such as charity and justice for the poor and mercy and and even taking care of their own mama, Corbin. What a contrast, folks. What a contrast to the picture of Christ. What we see as as pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, if you were with us when we went through the book of Ruth, we learned about a man named Boaz. Boaz. He was a generous man. People knew him as a loving man, a, a compassionate man. When Ruth came in uh, to harvest the corners of the land, he said, no, no, not just the corners. He, he told his own harvesters to, to pull the grain out of the sheaves. Leave it behind. Throw extra. Make it easy for them to get more and more. Make it easy on the poor. Make it easy on the foreigner. He was a generous man. Give. Give more. Jesus confronts the Pharisees as the three tithes, the 23 and a third percent, never functioned as an indicator of their generosity. They didn't have any generosity. Tithes were the minimum. They functioned more as a form of taxation mandatory for the proper functioning of the theocratic government. The court system. The priests. The priests. The temple and worship we are not a theocratic court system or a theocratic government. The tithe is more closely resembles our paying of taxes than a generous heart. There's a, there's a message out there if, if you want to look deeper into this. Um, John MacArthur has an outstanding message on this. It's called God's Plan for Giving. And he has part one and part two. Part one's good. Part two pretty much has everything in part one. So if you're only going to listen to one or the other, God's plan for giving, part two. I can send you a link if you want me to text it to you. Outstanding treatment uh, of these principles. Um, You know what really makes my beard stand on end? It's when people suggest that their giving of a tenth is automatically generous. I don't know how you can come to that conclusion. That is just generous by default. That's not what the law teaches. It's absolutely not what the new covenant of grace under Christ teaches. What the New Testament teaches on giving is crystal clear. I read to you the exhortation from the Apostle Paul earlier, which actually is binding on the church, unlike the law, which is not. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here's the principle. Now I say this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And yet, Christians today long to find their righteousness in the tithe and under the law? Why? We're a pretty wealthy country compared to the rest of the world. Why do we long for that measure? Does 10% let us off cheap? Paul warns if you're wanting to be justified under the law, you want to follow the law for your righteousness. He uses circumcision as, as one example, but it could be any facet of the law. Tithing or circumcision or feasts and festivals or dietary restrictions or Sabbath days or whatever you want to use from the law for your righteousness, if you think you're being justified by that rather than from a generous heart, you've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Galatians 5.4 The required threshold of giving has never been the requirement. Uh, excuse me, the required threshold of giving, excuse me, it's, it's never been the tithe. It's never been the tithe. The threshold of giving that God says symbolizes a clean heart, Old Testament and new, has always been generosity. That's a clean heart. On the first day of the week, we are told, each of you is to put aside and save. As the Lord prospers you, so it's proportionately. First Corinthians 16. And it's just so unfortunate is the word I'll use. How some religious establishments today shove Christians back under the law in order to extract from them a tithe. Rather than just encouraging the people of God to be generous from a pure heart. Just as it was among these Pharisees, Jesus suggests the tithe had become amongst them a light that was darkness. That's where they saw their righteousness. They thought it was light. They thought it was brilliant. Their hearts were dark. They weren't rich towards God. They meticulously carved out the three tithes, not a seed more. Why did these Pharisees who owned businesses, they were estate planners, lawyers, realtors, any other type of thing, why did they adore the tithe so much? They, they just loved the tithe. It's Because once they had carved out a tenth, their hearts were deceived into believing that God was pleased with them splurging the balance on themselves. Vacations, cruises, world travel, beach homes, extravagant cars, luxury accommodations, lavish lifestyles. God must just be so pleased with me to give me all of this prosperity that I'm enjoying and, and, and only expect 10% back. What a great deal the tithe is. See the reason some wealth, not all. some wealthy love the tithe so much, is that they've been incorrectly taught that it takes them off the hook for the rest. Well, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Riches are deceptive, and the rich have often oppressed the poor with disproportionate burdens as they fill bigger and bigger barns. To the farmer who Jesus described as greedy, that'll be in Luke chapter 12. God said, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Rich towards God. Generous towards God. That farmer was not generous with what God had prospered him with. He probably tithed. You know, we're going to talk about the rich farmer in the next chapter. I was going to give you an example of how this tithe can really work for the wealthy. I think I'm going to wait. I think I'm going to wait. I was going to use farming as an example because I grew up in farming and I know a lot about the tax mechanism and you know, holding grain and not having to pay taxes on it, no inventory tax and other things, and how you can build a large estate and amass wealth and gobble up the land of your neighbors if you have good years and just build more and more and more while you draw out of it a little modest little income for your household. We'll talk about that next. I think I already pretty much blew blew that surprise. (laughs) Increasing assets, amassing amassing large amounts of stuff. That's not the heart of God. People think that, you know, we can amass millions in estates and large amounts of land. And we say, well, you know, that's just how it works. There's winners and there's losers. That's how we explain it in uh, in America. Yeah, there's winners... There's losers. Some people are more ingenious with with the tax code than others. There's always going to be winners. There's always going to be losers. That's just how it is. But in reality, that's not the heart of God. Because there was no perpetual increasing of land in Israel, God did not allow a perpetual increasing of assets. Under the law, that's not what the law prescribed. Into the law, there were incorporated fail-safes against such behavior. Against select people getting too far ahead of everybody else. Every seventh year, we saw in our scripture reading, the the debts were canceled. Brought people back into a little closer relationship. Every 50th year, a celebration occurred. What's it called? The year of Jubilee, right? That's in the law. Every 50th year, there was a restoration of the land back to its original family. You follow me? It's a year of Jubilee. The land had to go back so nobody got too far ahead of everybody else. There's no amassing of large estates for privileged families or Rockefellers or Kennedys or Trumps. All contracts canceled, all debts forgiven, all slaves released. That's the heart of God. And although we're not under the law, we know from provisions written into the law, this has always been the heart of God. No different for them as it was for us. God is God. He he does not change, folks. Forgiveness, restoration, generosity, equitability. Pharisees didn't share. They didn't share. They just tithed. How much is generous? I know that's the question you're all asking. I don't particularly want to go through your finances. Anyone here. I don't want to know what you make. I can't tell you what generous is. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. You know God knows your heart; He knows too. You know what generous is. I know what generous is for reading myself. You know what it is for you. Um, if a widow, let's say a vulnerable person, I'll just give a couple examples. This this will help. This will help illustrate the problem here with the balances and the, and the corrections under the law in the Old Testament, the Jubilee year and. And uh, the seventh year, forgiveness of debts in the balance. This will just kind of amplify what we're talking about here. How it just the tithe just doesn't work. If a widow or any person vulnerable has an income of ten thousand per year from social security or whatever, don't think that there aren't many amongst us that are in that category. There are. But but if a vulnerable person, anyone has ten thousand a year from Social Security, maybe a modest pension, in this economy, is a tenth generous? A thousand? Oh, I'm telling you what. Five percent is generous at that point. In this economy, when you got electric bills and you're you're mandated on insurances and and, and other things, ten percent when your income's ten thousand. That's more like the liberality of the Macedonians, if that's you. All right? They gave according to their ability and even beyond their ability, Scripture tells us. 2 Corinthians 8. That is, Paul writes, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. So so if that's you, God bless you, folks. God bless you. We're talking this morning, me and Eli, about just saying, God bless you. This holiday season. What a wonderful thing to say to people. God bless you. God bless you. That's one example. What if, what if you're well-established? Well-established making 500000 a year. Well, let's just say 300000 a year. What if you're well-established? Doctor, lawyer, got the school debts paid off, well-established. Whatever your situation is, is giving 10%, 30000 is that generous? That would only leave you with a meager two hundred and seventy thousand, you know, to spend on chrome mufflers and hubcaps and stuff. That's that's not generous. That's not generous. Where ten percent was generous.